0: Are you listening? Kitteimasu ka? Asu koe? Tte
1: kō ga shimasu ka?
0: Sai ascoltando. Вы
2: слушаете? Nǐ zài tīng
0: Estás escuchando? Hören Sie zu?
2: Dari li gushmidi?
0: Dam sam rocho.
2: Hal ta
3: The Global Voices Podcast.
4: The world is talking.
3: Are you
1: listening?
4: Hello world and welcome to the first of two special editions of the Global Voices podcast. I'm your audio friend Jamila and I've had the privilege of talking to some of the participants of the Arabic bloggers meeting in Tunis, Tunisia. So to get you in the mood, I asked a handful of attendees from Syria, Egypt, Palestine, the USA, and Tunisia what they thought it is to be Arabic online in 2011.
0: I would say I'm overwhelmed because so many things have happened. I haven't really had the time to process it all and try to understand what we've been through. But definitely pride is part of this whole sensation.
3: There's a fascinating breadth and width to, to the Arabic here at the moment most of it is unreachable by international attention and international media. Mm -hmm. To be an Arab blogger is to be an Arab blogger that is read by mostly Arabs. Bridging projects like Global Voices have been doing fantastic, fantastically well in bringing these wonderful bloggers into the limelight. Bloggers who mainly blog in Arabic and bloggers who are very local in their interests. But also we can find the things that can interest a global audience in these local issues. So I think global voices, I think, uh, for example, Medan, these are the kind of projects that need to be supported and new ones based on these should be created
5: to help propagate these voices that are not really heard. The way I would see it is that the Arabs had a sense that the world has been watching them nonstop and very intensely, especially after 9-11 and dissecting every aspect of their lives identities for rightful reasons and also for less objective reasons. Whereas the sense that is going on being an Arab on the internet in 2011 is that finally they understood us.
2: For the world, the Arab world was a region with people without the same demands. Everybody's saying, Arab accept this kind of regimes. They are not really able to fight are right. They need a leader, a lot of theory about the structure of the mentality of the Arab people. And they showed that it's completely untrue. And the Arab young person had the same aspiration, the same need and freedom to have a job, to have a, a career. The image of the Arab world is changing. Even for us, Tunisian, we have a completely different view on our friend in, from Libya. And now we are discovering our neighbour. A lot of Libyan come to Tunisia since a very long time, but we discovered this population now and we say, okay, we have friends that have the same needs and they are able also to fight to reach their goals. So. I think it's very important for the Arab themselves to gain self-esteem and self-confidence. And for the rest of the world, they are changing the way to apprehend this region.
6: Why I'm happy now? Because we start to understand the internet is not only for people who has no freedom to watch uh, silly movies, to do chat, to waste your time. It's a tool to express yourself especially in a places where is there is no freedom. I think now, after the revolution, all the people start to ask, what is Facebook? What is the internet? Because when you are in a place when the generation, especially the first generation, they are not used to internet. They think that having internet at the home it's very bad for his children, very bad for the girls. But now they understand that you can educate yourself through internet. You can do your own stuff, you can send your message, you can tell the people about what's going on. And now the education of, or the level of understanding the benefits of the internet, now it's growing more and more in a very positive way.
4: A long way to go, but a positive message there. Naturally, at this year's meeting, the topic of the Arab Uprisings has been a great part of the conversation. The role of the citizen journalist has been very important in describing events to a wider audience. I chatted with Lillian, a blogger from Egypt, about how it can be hard work, but that the benefits outweigh the labor.
0: It is quite a hard work, but I do think that we have more resources than we used to have. And I do think that we are gaining more influence and we are pushing the red lines of mainstream media. We are forcing mainstream media to talk about issues that they wouldn't otherwise talk about. And I think that as citizen journalists, we are gonna play a vital role in reporting and monitoring the upcoming parliamentary elections.
4: What do you think will be different this time around when it comes to access for citizen journalists in Egypt to election process?
0: We're going to face certain difficulties. Um, I don't think that we will be easily welcomed or admitted to polling stations. I think we will have troubles supervising the vote counting process, but we're going to do our best to document what we see through pictures, through videos, and make this media content available to the masses so they can spread the word about what's going on and hopefully we can keep any irregularities that might occur in Czech.
4: Are citizen journalists also covering areas outside of the cities like Alexandria and Cairo? Are they further out?
0: I think that social media websites like Twitter have taken citizen journalists to a whole new level. You have now people who are not active before the revolution they are encouraged to take part and become active on the ground you would find people who are based in cities outside the capital and they are willing to work to bring us the clear picture about what's happening on their ground and you have people who are willing to travel outside the capital to to see what's happening outside this really very centralized area. I think what would be interesting is if you can encourage ordinary citizens to be part of this, encourage them to make use of content that they already have. I mean, people might be walking in the street, and they see something interesting happen, and they just grab their mobiles and, and take photos or videos of it, and they have nowhere to publish this information so maybe your role as a citizen journalist is to show them how they can do this online or maybe talk to local cyber cafes and suggest to them that they can offer an uploading service for pictures and videos so people who want their media content be seen by a larger crowd can have you know, uh, have a resource to do that. Is it
4: difficult? Is it a matter of people getting access to technologies or bandwidth when it comes to uploading something like an image or or video? It can take quite a long time. So those services provided in cyber cafes and similar areas?
0: That's the thing, in cyber cafes you would have somebody do that for you, if you're not tech savvy, if you don't want to be bothered with with all this technological hassle, you have something that you want to offer online, a cyber cafe operator can do that for you, I mean he runs a cyber cafe so he, he knows something about technology he or she knows something about technology so they can do it for you and I think it's a good way to make people practice citizen journalism on a conscious level.
4: Online active and bloggers travelled from near and far to come to the meeting. Yazan is a Syrian blogger currently based in Japan. I asked him what it was that made sure that he travelled that distance to be there.
3: Obviously the first reason is to come and meet all these bloggers. But especially the timing was very important because what happened throughout the last seven months seemed like a, like a real vindication of everything these wonderful people have been doing for, for the past five six years and it seemed very important to come here and discuss what happened and see how they view it and see what can we learn from that
4: the situation is still ongoing in Syria do you think people still have a taste for raising their voices online because the repercussions do seem very serious
3: to be honest what's happened in Syria shifted the red lines a little bit so it's it's not that difficult to raise your voice online right now in Syria What's really difficult, what's really dangerous, and by dangerous, I mean it's a deadly mission, is to go on a protest. So that's what we're focusing on right now, because right now, whether you're writing on Facebook, you're tweeting, it's not that dangerous. I think the protesters are the ones who are facing real, real danger right now, the activists on the ground, uh, the local activists, these are the ones who are facing real danger and in the past two months there seemed to be a policy of uh, of eliminating these people.
4: We have rooms full of fantastic bloggers, very eloquent people, telling the world what's going on. Does this also help protesters on the ground? Are they able to see that kind of support?
3: I would hope so. I I would really hope so. It would help them to see this, this support but it would also help propagate their voices, bring them to to the attention of the outside world. Because of the connections these bloggers have with international media, because of the authority they command, because of the confidence put in them, I think they have a great role to deliver these voices that otherwise wouldn't be heard.
4: And do you think that the conference is helping bloggers especially keep the momentum up? Because I think now bloggers covering a situation that journalists can't get into, face a similar media problem that the international community may have a certain amount of apathy or lose their taste for a situation as it goes on but that doesn't make it any less important.
3: Oh, certainly, certainly. I think being here in Tunisia helps. Meeting all these wonderful bloggers from Tunisia and from Egypt, listening about their success stories, about their failures, definitely helps. It, it gives you an idea of what could happen in Syria and simply having that ideal out there. It certainly pushes you forward. Do you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world, dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at GlobalVoicesOnline.org
4: Though the uprisings are a topic of conversation, the Arabic bloggers meeting this year was a forum for pushing things onward. Nasser Wadadi is the civil rights activist director for the American Islamic Congress based in Boston in the United States. I asked him what the most important issues of the day were.
5: The $64,000 question really is how are we going to adapt to the next phase and how quickly are we going to do it? Because we entered into a new phase of the process of reform and change in our societies with the uh, collapse of several dictatorships and others are still in progress and what we call less affectionately the counter-revolutions that are ongoing in the Arab world is the question again remains is how to adapt and provide solutions rather than simply diagnosing problems which by the way, was one of the main differences between this session and the last session around. It's not only in the conference, that was the mindset back in the day before the uprisings, is that knowing that we had this big problem, which is chiefly the complete stagnation and the apparent immobility of these regimes, we knew that that was an illusion and the problem was how to smash that illusion. Mm -hmm whereas today what we're looking forward to is to push that logic and provide other creative solutions not simply talking points is that there are big questions really it's that where are we headed and the answer cannot simply be an observation or a talking point it has to translate into actual strategies
4: the world view of arabic countries is that changing because of the focus on things like the arab revolutions
5: the uprisings have completely and utterly shattered the perception of the Arab world as a, a backwater of civilization that exported hate and violence. That was the main uh, result of 9 11. Whereas, after the uprisings, when you had the Western world for the first time having glimpses under the, sur- the surface that they used to see, which is one of war and uh, heads of states and big geopolitical conflict when they started seeing individual Arabs in the street, demanding and calling for exactly the same things that Western societies cherish and hold as their founding principles that completely changed perceptions and the Arab world shifted from being seen as an area that exports destruction and mayhem to actually an area that is leading in, in creativity. We're seeing basically a shift as monumental as possibly the shift that went on after the decolonization period, when independent states emerged for the first times in areas that were traditionally seen as simply the empire.
4: Are we at risk of thinking that solutions that might be applied in Arabic countries need to be the western style.
5: That's a very valid point and many of us are contending with but I think it would be also helpful to realize the universality of certain things because when we're seeing movements like the Acampadas, Los Indignados in Spain, the Wall Street movement in the United States and when you have as far as Vietnam and China people looking for inspiration from the Arab world and looking to copy or learn lessons they can apply in their own sense that shows you the, that we're living indeed in a globalized world with universal values. Of course there are certain particularity to every society but again the realization here is that in a globalized world we're less and less different than we really think we are.
4: Thinking about globalization in terms of internet access it's great to have bloggers at a meeting like this to discuss the big issues and look forward to forms of change But there still seems to be a huge amount of society who would benefit from changes that may not have the same access that we do, who are maybe not part of that online conversation. How can that be addressed?
5: Through the American Islamic Congress, we identified that the solution to that problem is not so much focusing on the digital, what we call the digital gap, which is real and is a problem that needs to be addressed. But the question really, from our perspective is, are individuals who are not online, getting the sense that they have a say in their own matters and that they do have power to change their own communities on the small scale through their own individual entrepreneurship and skills. Mm -hmm. And the way to, I think, going forward, and this is something we are working on across the region, is precisely to empower young social entrepreneurship that is not only about human rights and the classical themes and sort of what we call the human rights discourse 1.0, but really the revolution would become is when you have small communities with individuals who are empowered to run their own, take their abstract ideas and turn them in initiatives that actually fit their communities and provide solutions that are adapted to their own communities that's actually the way to go because frankly in the Arab world something is plenty clear, governments cannot and will not provide solutions to every problem and ultimately the benefit of having freedom and individual rights and liberty is for the individuals to be empowered to take matters in their own hands and that's through social entrepreneurship and individual initiatives.
4: The summit not only provided a place for discourse but a number of talks and presentations that shed light on current events as well as providing training and new ideas. Marek Tyszynski, co-founder and co-director of Tactical Technology Collective gave a presentation about clear visualization online for activists. So what's so wrong with activism as it stands?
1: There's nothing wrong with activism, first of all. Uh, there are ways that activism can be more effective, more targeted and uh, more engaging communities and so on. But as it is, it's, it's fantastic and uh, you can see a lot of symptoms of how activism is becoming important you know there's a lot of space between politics and wikileaks if you like, and there's a space that should be filled by activists. What I was focusing on was the role of visualization in the picture, so how you can move from emotional participation of people that are expressing their views, uh, desires on the walls of the streets into something that would speak to broader audiences and could utilize new media old media, whatever you want.
4: So in using visual methods to get a message across, is this a better way of crossing the boundaries of, say, language?
1: Yes, uh, crossing barriers such as language and cultures can be done through visualization. But but for me it's more important a combination of three elements. One of them is evidence. Activism without evidence is just political blah-blah uh, that I wouldn't even listen to. You need evidence to create change. Then uh, techies are very important. And the concepts of uh, open data, free software, free culture, you need that, you need to know what it is and you need to fight for that. Otherwise, you won't be able to act on things you would like to act. And design is super important because, uh, as you said, it is breaking barriers and allows you to convene complex concepts into formats that people can absorb easily, understand, analyze, explore, learn from and share with others.
4: That's a lot of roles rolled into one. I mean if you're personally very passionate about something, is it a better idea to find other people with design skills or data processing skills that might help you out to present your cause?
1: Yes, finding people that's a kind of a, a tricky business, but a very important business. What I was saying actually during the presentation, that is a cult of an individual, that a single person can do everything. That's not true. There are cases where uh, you know, amazing characters that can do that, but it's you know, a fraction of what ordinary human being can do. And if you want work as a group, if you want work as a community, where you have a strong designer, strong techie, strong advocate, people with ideas about communication, then you won't be able to produce something, you know, sound that would help you to create change. But also I would like to kind of uh, tell one more thing that the visualization and new media and so on, those are just elements, tactics, that you can use. Advocacy, campaigning, what activists are doing is a complex process, is a time-consuming process and you need to have a lot of people involved in. You have to have a strategy and you have to be able to adjust the strategy as situation is changing and situation is changing, will be changing all the time.
4: How do you convince people though? Because if somebody is very passionate or desperately wants to get a cause going or make their point, it seems a bit of a drag to have to wave through everything along the way.
1: That is a very interesting question. What is the you know the link between being opinionated and actually being an agent in change? And obviously opinionated people are important because they at least can steer discussion and discussion can be inspirational and may move some people to some action. However, if you want to do activism, for me activism means that you have a reason, you have a certain you know, moral code and you have evidence, then you will be able to convince people to do something. And for that, you need to spend a lot of time with a lot of people to produce a lot of things. And there's no other way. There's no other way. Activism is a hard work that nobody will pay you for.
4: (laughs) I mean, not wanting to put people off, but it seems to be maybe getting harder, given the Internet is a vast place but with more causes being presented online, is it becoming more important that people present themselves in a way that is appealing? Because it seems to be almost activism competition for people's attention.
1: Well, you know, in information space, there always has been, is and will be competition not only because people, would, you know, people like competition as human beings, but also because uh, information is about interpretation, information is about context, information is about time, and you can have different opinions about that. And add to that beliefs, add to that you belong to certain groups, either culture or religious or whatever formats you can have. Then this gets very complicated. And, uh, and because of that, it is a very hard space to navigate, It's extremely hard to navigate and the competition in that context is good because internet allows you to test your opinions with other people in a free way. So it is not curated by others, it is not censored by others and you get feedback instantly. That's how it works, I think.
4: And when you do get that feedback, is it important to remind people to be quite strong because you're exposing yourself to quite a lot of different opinions and obviously not everyone is going to agree with you, sometimes not at all. Do you think people are necessarily prepared for the kind of feedback they might get on the Internet?
1: Uh, if you are prepared for feedback, uh, you know, there's a lot of cases that you are not prepared. There's a, a lot of arguments uh, even over Twitter and over like very minimalistic media and it's kind of hysterical to watch arguments over Twitter and so on. But it, it is showing you something that is very important, which is uh, how much emotions are around certain topics and they will steal arguments, and I don't think it's anything unhealthy, unless there's a personal competition between people and how important they are and so on, which I think is unhealthy. But if there's an argument about evidence, is an argument about issues, that's very healthy. I mean, this is the discussion that is a, a strong element of democracy, which is ability to express your views and get confronted with them. And on the other hand, you know, it's tough, but it's online. Nobody's behind your door, waiting to beat you up on a staircase, so this is something you can absorb.
4: Many people at the summit had been to previous events. Gillian C. York of the Electronic Frontier Foundation is on the board and writes for Global Voices. I asked her about her experience at the summit.
7: I was at the second summit in 2009. It was much smaller than this, and I had met a lot of people that time for the first time. And, you know, about a year later is when uh, the revolution in Tunisia and then Egypt started, and it was fascinating for me to see all of these people that I'd met becoming so instrumental in changing their countries. And these are all people that I admired greatly anyway um, and had known online in some cases for years. And so this time, I mean, for me, you know, I came here mostly to listen, to hear people's experiences so that I could take them back and, and uh, use them in my work. But at the same time, you know, I was honestly just really looking forward to seeing a lot of my friends again and all of these people that I love so
4: dearly. A lot of progress in a way here has been about some of the conversations that we have in the coffee breaks, over lunch, at dinner, that actually take things a lot further.
7: Really, you get to a certain threshold where when you have so many people in a room, it becomes really difficult to get everyone's attention, to keep focus, and obviously in this case, we actually do have a lot of people who don't speak Arabic, and so it's difficult for them. Of course, they knew coming in that they would have to adapt. So I think that, you know, a lot of times, people feel more free to talk in smaller groups, and so a lot of the most productive conversations I've had have been one-on-one, or one-on-four, or what have you. And I think that's really just sort of the nature of the beast uh, when conferences tend to be better outside of official sessions anyway, Um, which is not to say that the official sessions here haven't been fantastic. Many of them have, but I think
4: it's just difficult with so many people. Not everybody has been able to make it. In fact, it's impossible really to, when you see the people online who are great writers on all sorts of topics, to fit them all in the same room anyway. But steps have been taken to try and include people. What has that involved? There have been a
7: couple of frustrations that I've heard and that I've felt as well. I mean, I think that you know the organizers did such a wonderful job in putting this together, and I know that they struggled a lot with things like funding and the details that go with putting together such a big conference, especially in a country that's just changed so much. But at the same time, it's frustrating to see, you know, that we only have one Moroccan present, that there are no Yemenis here, and in particular, the fact that I think 12 Palestinian bloggers were denied visas by the Tunisian government. We, you know, we've seen a lot of protest online about that and a lot of people suggesting that we walk out. But I think that what those people don't realize is that, I mean, first of all, that the organizers, particularly Noat, fought really hard with the Ministry of Interior to get the Palestinian bloggers and they only succeeded in bringing one. And you know, on the other hand, yeah, you know, I also I understand the the sentiment behind a boycott. And perhaps you know, doing something in solidarity on the first public day of the conference, when we were surrounded by Tunisian media, would have been a good idea. But in you know, reality, this is a meeting where some of us you know see each other every two or three years, where we are not only seeing our friends, but also discussing really important issues. And like you said, especially during the times of coffee. And so sure, if we walked out on the meeting, it would certainly be disappointing to all of the organizations, but we would still be having these conversations anyway. And so for me, I think that um, you know, expressing solidarity with our Palestinian friends, expressing anger at the Tunisian government for their decision, but also supporting the organizations that made this conference happen, and that tried so hard to get those people here um, is really important.
4: What does your work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, how does that tie into an event like this?
7: Well, so the Electronic Frontier Foundation has been around since, I hope I get this right, 1990. And we do a lot of domestic work in the US around things like the Patriot Act and warrantless wiretapping, uh, intellectual property. But we also have a small international team and uh, of that, you know, I'm the one who works on free expression globally. We also have someone who does privacy and someone who does copyright. And what that means for me is raising awareness around issues in countries like Syria and, and previously Tunisia. It also means meeting with local uh, activists or local organizations to help support them in their work, and that you know it usually doesn't mean financially, but it can mean translating the stuff that they're working on or helping connect them with technologists or other experts, uh, bringing them to conferences when I can. And so that's you know that's one of the main reasons that I get involved in things like this because I want to make sure that I completely understand the experience of people on the ground in countries and I don't want to speak for
4: them, I want to help them speak louder. Jillian's mention of the problems for Palestinian bloggers trying to attend meant that alternative methods were used to contact those people and include them in different ways online during the conference. One person did get their visa, so I had a chat with Saeed Karzun about the problem and how he hoped to share while at the conference.
6: We were surprised because all of us applied to the Tunisian three weeks or four weeks before the time. Mm And I am the only one who got it. Yes, I was the first one who applied and uh, as, as a person, as individual, not as a group. And this helped me, I think so, but I am the only one who got it. The question is, why the others didn't? We thought that after the Tunisian revolution, we thought that it will be easier for us as Palestinians to come. And it was the opposite. Really, we were shocked, and we are asking for the real reasons behind this.
4: What was the hope for Palestinians who may be able to attend? What were they going to bring to the conference?
6: This is a real hope, you know, because here you come in three days, you meet with activists, and they are really good. They have a very good experience. Coming here, especially Palestinians, they will come back with a very good experience in order to bring this experience from Tunisia to Palestine, to teach the others, to send this information, to tell the people about this experience, about how to use social media.
4: What is the Palestinian experience of being online? Is it difficult or is it very active?
6: You can say it's active and it's not, because we have a very good internet connection, actually, in Palestine, and it's a very good tool. But still the people, they need time to understand how to use these tools. Some of the people, they are using really these tools in a very good way, like sending their ideas, articles, photos, videos. We are really using these tools. But we are always hoping more and more in order to show their reality in Palestine.
4: Are there ideas that you are able to bring back at least to to communicate to people back home?
6: I have two projects, to be honest. One project is to talk about beautiful Palestine in order to tell the people about positive things that they can show. The other thing, now it's good to talk about politics, economics, uh, critique the, the, the system that we are using. I am um, against, let's say, the system that used by the government. It's very slow, it's really weak, we need to improve it. So we have to write, we have to film, we have to say no when we have to tell it. And by using the tools of the social media, of the new media, we can really reach a huge quantity of people. And this will bring a very good equality in order to bring the change. At the end, the change is positive.
4: Raising voices online out of Palestine, do you think it helps to adjust a global view of what it is like to be in that country? Because there are huge stereotypes or maybe specific topics only that people think about when they think of Palestine. Is it getting easier to show people the other side?
6: Thanks for this question, actually. This is really very important. I'm working on this since years. I'm working in the music field. I'm working in films and radio, different things, in order to show this reality. Most of the people in the world, if they don't know Palestine, They have this bad image, they have this stereotype, they think that there is war. Yes, there is war, but what kind of war? We have different things to see. We have a very beautiful place, a very beautiful people, open, they welcome well. I hope if you come to Palestine, you will see this, how they welcome well, the food, the places where you can visit, the fun that you can have, the education that we got. It's really good and very important to tell. This is why I'm working since years on a project called Beautiful Palestine writing about beautiful stories, beautiful people, beautiful pictures, environment, nice people, playing music, concert, theatre. We have all these kind of things. So it's very important to tell the people about.
4: Do you know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English-speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at Global Voices online slash lingua. The location of the Arabic bloggers meeting in Tunis was highly relevant to the main topics discussed in almost every session of the event. Tunisia has seen revolution and inspired many other movements in the region. Malek Khadraoui is the co-administrator of Nawat, an independent group blog run by Tunisians. I asked him how the network across nations had been fueling hope and providing practical advice.
2: If you try to understand what happened before maybe the revolution and how the network helps, the connection between Tunisian and Egyptian, for example, was very important. I was in Egypt the last day of the Ben Ali's regime and I was watching the last speech with uh, a lot of friends in Egypt. Mm. Egypt was already very agitated and people are waiting for something. and. I saw how much the 14th of January influence mm. maybe give the last good push mm. to the Egyptian to move to the street and they said, okay, it's possible, mm-hmm. we're gonna make it. And maybe those regimes are not so strong, mm. so we can. Yeah. Between the 17th of December and 14th of June, Egyptian friend helped us to maybe to translate a lot of contents, give us advice. And afterward, they was learning from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And try maybe to do the things that worked for us. Mm -hmm. So there is like some exchange, even if it's not organized, but the fact that we know each other and we are following each other, it was easy for them and for us to learn from them. Now we can maybe hope that it's going to be the same thing for Syrian friends and with Bahraini friends and for the Libyan, for example, also. Even if the situation is completely different, but we try also to help them with giving them advice maybe and to tell them don't do that because we try it and it's not a good solution and try to do that so I think even if it's not organized and it's not a structure uh, that uh, the fact that the network exists help a lot to organize or maybe to to be more efficient in this uh, situation
4: here in Tunisia people are considering obviously now a post-revolution environment. But there are still issues, and, and issues even this week with the internet. What has happened with internet blocking in Tunisia this week?
2: Most of the issues that we was uh, fighting against before the 14th of January still exist. The fight against censorship is not yet won, and we still try to make internet a safe place for people who use it and the accessible place for users. We saw in Tunisia a lot of judiciary block from the military court. There is also a judiciary decision to block pornography and all the websites who are against morality. And it's very vague and very uh, large definition of uh, the morality. So. We are facing the same willing from the government to control this, this area. But the difference maybe today is that the people have more self-confidence and they know that they can influence the decision and make a change the government decisions. So maybe the balance is more equalized. We try to push some of the institutions who maybe deal with the internet or this judiciary institution to reconsider how they approach the question of the internet, because there is a lot of, there's a gap between generations. Tunisians use a lot new technology, but the generation who, who rule the country right now is, is, is an old generation, so they didn't really understand what's happening. So we try to make them understand, to push if we need you know, to make campaigns against what they want to do for the internet. For example, the ATI was the agency who censored the internet, and In Tunisia now is our ally. The opening day in the Arab Blogger meeting, we saw the CIO of ATI explaining how it's difficult, you know, to stay neutral, to resist to the court decision to block some websites. So there is a change, but the is still going on.
4: Is it inspiring at least that there is a dialogue now, that people can talk with authorities? about what the future should be like?
2: There's a dialogue and the authorities are very aware of what people are saying on the network or social media. And uh, the voice of one blogger, of a group of bloggers, became more stronger and more louder. So people can hear it and even media can talk about it. So we saw with the question of maybe the, uh, the refusal of the Minister of Interior to give visa to uh, Palestinians all the Tunisian media talk about it, the TV stations, and this is was unbelievable, you know. We have today like a power or some uh, a possibility mm-hmm. to influence the decisions and even to discuss with government and have more maybe weight to be a part, equal part with, with a, a partner with the government. But the approach of the government still, they think thinking how to control how to minimise, not really how to find solutions.
4: Are there signs of any more freedom of being able to cover the elections or are there already issues that are starting to come up that seem like the old regime still?
2: Yeah, the most amazing maybe uh, decision made by this government is to forbid to the foreign media to interview uh, candidates and to cover, you know, the campaigns or to have them, like, an invite or a guest in the shows, TV shows. Or, and it's completely amazing. We know that our media are not yet able to be very efficient in covering election because they don't have any experience of that. It's the first time in our history, really, to, that media can cover election and they are not ready, even if there is a lot of progress made. A lot of ag- a lot of companies or a uh, lot of NGOs are working on t- uh, training Tunisian media, but the result is not really as important uh, as we expect for this period. So international media can help, maybe even Tunisian, even Tunisian media to cover this election because they had the experience, they had the. A- and I don't know for which reason the government decides. I think it's more to protect the big parties because foreign media in general try to find maybe independent people and more to help small candidates against the big parties. And as we see in Tunisia, the, the most coverage is for the big parties' independents are 45% of the candidates. They have maybe less than 3% of time in Tunisian media. It's a real problem and this is one of the decision made that show you that the mentality is still the same. And even with how the police still act with protesters, non-violent protesters, it shows that the mentality doesn't really change. We've succeeded to move the head of the regime, but the regime's still there, and the system is weak, but he's still in charge of the country.
4: Although it's certainly extraordinary to have so many brilliant people from so many different places here at the moment, Is there still a divide in Tunisia between people who can access the internet to see these conversations in this network and the people who maybe agree or feel the same but are not getting online? So how do they find out whether or not they are supported or can support people in the same way?
2: Maybe in Egypt, this phenomenon is more uh, pronounced, but in Tunisia, the internet in general, and Facebook especially, have a very high uh, level of penetration about three million Tunisian are, had a, a Facebook account and sometimes an account is used by the whole family and after that you have you know, the real connection in the street when, when someone had the information he can spread it around even if the people didn't have Facebook or the internet. When you talk in the street with the taxi driver or with the waiters in and, and a cafe he can talk about a video that you post in Facebook and he saw it so I think that in Tunisia there is no really gap even if Maybe we can, some region in the, in the country, the internet is not so important, but generally it's, it's, it had a very big influence.
4: There were so many experienced, entertaining, knowledgeable and wonderful people at the Arabic bloggers meeting that I could not fit them all into one edition of the Global Voices podcast. So, I have split the collection of recordings into two, and you can hear more from our experts and attendees on the second part of this audio coverage. You can find out more about this event, the people I spoke to, and many others by visiting globalvoicesonline.org. The Global Voices podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening.
0: Thanks for listening.
6: Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices
2: stories on Facebook, too.